Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got an extra special guest who is a residential real estate investment specialist with over 40 years in the industry. Specialties including institutional PRS, uh, multifamily, build to rent, and currently is the CEO of the Single Family uh, Rental association so welcome richard berridge very nice for you to have be here in our podcast studio thanks for having me it's good to be here i think we've had a quite interesting conversation already so we we have i'm I'm hoping we can uh we can you can repeat some of the fantastic things you've said welcome to the rodcast with rod turner the show all about real estate We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. So, Richard, do you want to give our audience a bit of background as to how you came to uh, be part of the Single Family Rental Association um, and a bit of uh, background in terms of your career in real estate? Yeah, well, first of all, sort of career in real estate started started a long time ago. And I think quite possibly a lot of us um, probably started off in sort of agency. And I worked for um, Man & Co. My first job was Man & Co. in Potter's Bar. And, um, you know, from from there on, I'm sorry to say this for Man & Co. because I'm sure you're all lovely people, but yeah, the only way is up. (laughs) And, um, well, I I also to the people, I apologize to the people in Potter's Bar as well, perhaps. Um, But it was in a place called Dark's Lane, so that just about tops it off. Um, and then thereafter, I kind of worked in. I worked to an agency in London. I worked for an Irish developer, um, and I've since gone through the whole thing in in terms of property management, property development, property investment, and agency. So I like to think that I've got a pretty good idea of you know what the what the property industry looks like, you know, as a sort of a holistic holistic view. And and I was sort of working in London in uh, in in two thousands. Uh, principally in sort of the property investment market, and uh, just during the course of the, uh, the, the the GFC, I worked for a business called Residential Land, and um, we had to uh, very quickly sort of uh, refinance a lot of our properties because not because we were in trouble at all, but actual fact that people who were who were funding us were in trouble. Well, and that was one of the banks. So I'm going to leave it to speculate who that might be. And so we bought back a lot of that stuff. And at the same time, we also did a deal with um, uh, Ivan Cambridge, a big institutional Canadian funder who who, who would do a lot of institutional real estate funding right away around the world, and also a global real estate. And that was one of the first times I got involved in that sort of institutional piece. And that was just about 2010, I think, 2009, 2010. Thereafter, you know, um, we were involved in institutional sort of real estate and talking to um, uh, MSCI and all those sort of businesses that uh, focus our data around institutional uh, funding and institutional housing, particularly residential. Uh, and then, you know, as a lot of people might remember, the Montague Report came out in 2012, made certain about five sort of key recommendations, one of which was a PRS task force, which lasted about two years. Uh, but also, it was also supposed to start to look at, you know, what would institutional funding look like? And I think it was entitled, that report, the, the, bar- the barriers to institutional funding of the PRS links, on top of my head. Um, and it really sort of, you know, uh, although there were some players earlier on, there was sort of Delancey who had bought the, um, who had bought the Athletes Village, and there was Pizzy Living who had done a deal with uh, uh, Metropolitan Housing, and they had done that sort of in 2004. 10, 2011. Now, that, that sort of report kicked off the whole interest, if you like, in the in the institutional investment in housing. And, and as we discussed sort of off mic, if you like, you know, that is not something that is new. It's been going on for an awful lot, t- long time. And back in the 30s, you know, built to rent, if you like, was a thing. Um, and there were things in, you know, big buildings in Ballam. And then obviously uh, we discussed uh, Dolphin Square, which was originally, you know, a, a, a built to rent scheme, if you like, you know, built built in the middle in the thirties. So, you know, there was a there was a lot going on. Uh but it obviously, you know, they, uh, and as they say, and as my sort of uh, Indian friend son say something, there's nothing new under the sun. Catch up. Uh and uh, and there isn't. You know, there isn't, you know, we we like to think we've reinvented it and 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 uh, and we haven't have it really. But what really came out of it because of institutional investment was that 
idea of reputational risk of how is it going to be controlled and you know re look looking again at, at, the, at the private rental market which hasn't as you know had a had a great had a great reputation and saying how can we how can we improve things you know if we're going to be involved in this it's got to be an awful lot better than it is at the moment we have to stick to what we say we're going to do we're going to work with government and so forth and just make it a, a better place uh, and so I suppose it's from around that time involvement with with Ivanhoe about 2010 ish uh, uh, is when I sort of came into the institutional investment in residential, which probably is one of the earliest of the contemporary type, our time, if you like, is when it really started in, in, in many ways. Um, and so that's how I got into it. Uh, it's been what's termed multifamily, most of it, which is the sort of dense urban stuff, you know, and with amenities and uh, Businesses like a bit of businesses, but sort of organisations like uh, the Urban Land Institute did tours over in the states. Uh, the UKA was born around 2016, so you know that the UK Apartment Association, and they've been instrumental in you know pulling together people, uh, uh, operational business, operational management businesses, suppliers, investors, and so forth into that sort of urban environment, talking about regeneration and so forth. Uh, and I, I was a member of the of the UKA at one point. But sort of latterly, I've been more interested in, in houses. Um, the, the point about houses is that in, in the UK, at least 80% of us live in houses. And uh, pretty much over time, 80% of what we build, generally speaking, in this country are houses. Uh, and 60% of the PRS are houses. So it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, when you start to think, about what can we do in this, in this market that genuinely has, is impactful? Um, and where gener- generally we, we can build everywhere. You know, the, whilst the urban stuff is great, very high quality, brilliantly managed, can only touch a relatively few number of people. Um, it's quite small. The, the, the viability assessments that go into, you know, is this worth doing, are pretty much uh, restricted to only a certain number of locations. It's not a few number, but in terms of how, where you can build houses, it's, it, it's, it's quite tidy. And we can build houses anywhere. And I've obviously gone on far too long. I don't want to hog this whole no, podcast. So, well, it's fantastic that you mentioned Ballum because I live in Ballum. What Duquesne Court? Duquesne Court. I wrote Duquesne Court down. Duquesne Duquesne Court. which is an Art Deco kind of huge kind yeah, of. It was owned by. Yeah. It was owned by funded by Royal London. It had. It was originally designed as a as a built to rent scheme. I did a piece on it years ago for someone who wanted to know a little bit about the uh, growth of built to rent. We focused on that. It was. It had 600 and something uh, apartments. It was originally supposed to have squash shorts and tennis courts. And the swimming pool. It had, it's, I think my hands were away. It had a restaurant. It had a dairy. It had a gravity postal feed, so you could put posts in it and go down to the, to the concierge. It had a concierge. It had a telephone on each floor, so they didn't have any rooms, those yeah. days. And they all had radio stations, uh, radio receivers within each of, the, each of the flats that could receive two stations, because there were probably only two of those days. But... Yeah, fantastic. It was it was, yeah. it was designed as a rental product, just as today's products are designed as rental. Yes, yeah, yeah, with all the amenities as well. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Um, so, I mean, you've kind of touched on some of it uh, in in your in your introduction, but how would you say the single family kind of rental market has changed um, over that period of time? And what is it? What's what's been the main reason that institutions have not kind of plowed money into it um, pre kind of 2010 and, and, and when you got involved? Well, in a word, um, scale. Um, it's difficult to scale. Uh, well, I say it's difficult to scale. It's a matter of perception. If you are investing in large urban schemes, and you've probably seen uh, stuff from the British Property Federation and Savills, they produce an instrument, in, a quarterly index about you know who's doing what, how many you know operational units are, how many in planning. Yeah. Thirty thousand in use and uh, seventy thousand in planning and things. Yeah, like I that. think yeah. there are so, about, so still uh, tiny around ninety thousand yeah. in all, ten thousand of which are houses. Sure, most of it are apartments. But if you look at that, if you look at the average size of each of those schemes, um, you know it's two hundred, three hundred plus. And so if you're investing significant sums, you know deploying capital. The institutions like to deploy big numbers. Mm-hmm. And with houses, you can't really deploy big numbers into one scheme because the density is very different. 
um, and the absorption of the rate is very different than the whole bit. So um, you don't you do don't get, and you probably wouldn't get five hundred houses in one space in every bedroom because. Funny, the funny other funny sort of thing is around houses they work better as a multi-tenure within a multi-tenure sure. environment yeah. whereas with the blocks the blocks of flats is that the um is that the whole you know, ethos behind um, multi-family is to sort of single ownership and management mm-hmm. of one block um so they wouldn't have a pimp block generally speaking you know would be pretty much wholly owned and rented and that's what controls Whereas homes are very different, houses are very different. You know, they can they can be pepper potted. Some people do it. Um, companies like Hearthstone, for instance, an investment company, um, an institution, will buy as few as like six or seven houses at a time, and they will. I would say that I wouldn't say necessarily pepper pot them, but some of them do. But they'll have a, a small, let's say, a terrace of five within scheme, and then another five somewhere else within that scheme. So yeah, it is it is it is very it is very different, and so this. The way that most institutions scale is not to buy five hands or even 30 or even 50. But the interesting thing is, is that it can be done and it can be done uh, through a number of ways, uh, mostly with partnerships with buildings. So uh, one of our uh, uh, members, if you like, uh, our board members, Sigma Capital, um, they, they own and operate 5,000 rental houses. Um, but their average size here, and I know that Rob Sanders probably got to correct me here, but it was at one time just over 60. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you know, that's not the sort of number where most institutions go, yeah, we'll take those 60 because they really want to take, we want to take those 300 yeah. or 400 or 500 or whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's scale, really. And I think that one of the interesting things that we can learn from the states is but you can buy small numbers of houses and you know, and, and, and agglomerate them as you add, build them into a much bigger portfolio. And that's what they did in the United States. So while, you know, their single family market was was, was only really born just after the GFC. Um, and yes, they did initially buy like tranches and mortgage defaults. They also bought single houses in, in single locations. Because, I mean, the US has a, has a much bigger... Uh, single-family rental market than we do over here, and you mentioned yep. it only was born out of the GFC. Do you want to kind of go into a bit more detail on that? How how did that come about, and what were the reasons behind it? Well, I think <clears throat> well, it was quite clear that uh, after, after the GFC and after those blow with mortgage defaults, the big institutions who are well organised and they have great data, uh, and they do. You know, sure that there was an arbitrage between what they were selling at and what they could rent them for. So obviously the yield was going to be quite high, and so they went and bought a lot of those. Uh, and then they continued doing that after the GSC by, by basically buying single houses, uh, and they put a lot of effort into that. And they would, you know, they would sort of scrape all the portals and the, and the Zillows and all those sort of things, and you know, and, and then go out and buy these houses, go to auctions, go to you know, go to listings, and just buy stuff that they thought. Uh, latterly, and so they're now up to so basically, so they're now up to about I'm trying to think, it's about seven, must be about seven hundred thousand, I think. Uh, they've got in the United States something that, along that well, not along that number. It's not actually as huge when you consider the United States. Well, I was going to say, I was, uh, what what kind of percentage is that? Because I know in the in the UK, um, if we think about well, the, the rental sector, bill to rent as a whole is still a very tiny proportion. Yeah, yeah. and and obviously single family homes within that is is minute. Yeah, yeah. We're, I think um, the 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 rental sector and the built to rent rental sector is about. Two percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a couple of points either way. Sure. Uh, and uh, and we're sort of ten percent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So point two percent. So uh, you know, so it's very small. And yet the the um, potential for single family housing in this country is greater than it is for for. Well, like you said, I mean, eighty percent of us live in houses. Six percent in Paris. Yeah. yeah. So just want to sort of touch back on the states. Oh, it's interesting because. It, in only one way are they slightly behind us. When I say slightly behind us, is that the latterly, they they have coined something which, and there's always a, a mismatch in terms sometimes with the states, but they have coined something that's called built for it. And that's actually the, um, uh, the uh, purpose-built housing complexes, uh, houses as opposed to apartments. They don't call their apartment business built for it, they call them. Yeah. So... Yeah, and they've only re- relatively recently started. Relatively recently started that, and they are actually behind us. 
Having said that, they of course aren't known to take this really quick. Yeah, yeah because yeah. that's the nature of the states. They and they do that stuff. Is there a big difference then about these companies and maybe institutions? I mean, I, I typically think of Granger BLC buying up single-family houses, but they're older stock. So where does the build-to-rent side of it come into play and how much of that is, what's the growth of that sector like at the moment in the UK? Well, just going back to companies like Granger, you have to bear in mind that Granger are a historically very old, old yeah. company. A lot of their, that, that stock that you just talked about there is, is legacy stock. Uh, and when I was an agent a long time ago, and I haven't really looked, recently to see what they're up to. But they used to sell off quite a lot of their legacy stock, their individual years, because it's just not um, efficient to hold them anyway. Um, you know, single years, it's costly and expensive to manage if they're sort of outliers, you know. Um, but the, the belt of rent thing was, was uh, it's designed really to fulfill the requirements of institutions. So we'll be, we, we, we probably talked a little bit about, you know, sustainability and environmental, social and gov- governance. And you have to bear in mind that those those you know that acronym ESG um, one is supposed to focus equally on those three elements and not just either environmental social or government. So when you talk about ESG, you should be talking about that, please. Um, but the built rent stuff came came around is because nothing really existed at that time that was suitable. Yes, I think some of the early schemes were bought from developers who. Were originally uh, and the, well, the buildings were designed and intended for open market sale, um, but chose to sell to an, to an investor. So they probably weren't optimal mm-hmm. in lots of ways. And you have to bear in mind that you know, in terms of operational management, you want to be able to operate something in terms of that, that uh, urban uh, those urban schemes more like you would operate a commercial building. I, I, I'm not going to say hotel necessarily because it's not the same thing, but those efficiencies that are built into building, which mean it's easy to manage or operate and all that kind of you know, work is easier and, and less expensive. Um, and so, you know, certain designs were adopted as well. So uh, the, 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 the apartments themselves tend to be more efficiently designed. They tend to be sometimes a little smaller, but only basically because those areas that one never uses in an apartment, like the corridor spaces, for instance, you know, you don't live in. You only kind of walk down, you know. So there was a more efficient sort of design work. And there's a, you know, a lot of architects who have specialised in that. So, uh, 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 sale, for instance, um, uh, I think it's RKL, you know, have been at the forefront of sort of, you know, revisiting the design of apartments and how can you make them more efficient and how can you make the, the living space, if you like, you know, more appropriate yeah, to work. So well, that could be, and that just kind of means that, you know, the institutions that are getting a, uh, a classically a much more efficient building and into a much better space to live in. Yeah. And um, how does that kind of transfer into single family homes um, that are being built? Are they still able to get those efficiencies? Well, you, you, I think we have to look at certain trends at the moment as well. I think they do look at those sort of efficiencies, yeah. But we're also looking at things, for instance, like, you know, what would this place be like to work from home? You know, because you know, we look back at the COVID time and um, it's not that long ago, uh, and, it, and it interrupted two years of all our lives uh, and the way that we lived. And we, we sort of, a lot of us sort of revisited, you know, what we did, how we worked, where we worked, and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, do we have to travel on the train so much? And you know, I've come to see you on the train today, and I come on a Friday, virtually, uh, virtually empty. Now, if I come on that same train on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, standing remotely, but uh, Mondays and Fridays not so much. <laughs> but um, so people do work from home an awful lot more. So you know, we, with the houses themselves, the interesting thing about houses is that they're probably more sensitive to local vernacular. You know, right the way across the country when something might be built of stone or, or brick or rendered or that kind of stuff. So they're entirely flexible in that space. And they have to fit in, you know, and work well with a local environment. And they tend to be built, you know, on the on the outskirts or the sides or, or a site within an existing urban environment, with an existing sort of suburban in short. Um, I'm, I live, you know, in a village called Crayshaw in East Hampshire. It's a big village and it's got a, you know, a, a Sainsbury's and a co-op under about 600 of their addresses and almost as many estate agents and then a few other shops. Um, you know, but single family housing, you, 
would work in Glacier as a village. Um, and it doesn't need that huge density to upload. So we could put, let's say, I don't know, 30 houses there and rent the lot. Um, so it is all, all, very, all very different. And um, uh, with the houses particularly, I think they will be focusing much more on sustainability. And that means built locally, from the local resources as much as possible, with local labour as much as possible. So that travelling time for resources is reduced, so that carbon footprint is reduced. And then the um, uh, uh, energy efficiency of the building. You know, we're talking about buildings that probably have some photovoltaics on the roof, energy storage systems, some battery, underfloor heating, uh, if it's possible. Certainly, pretty much all, all of them, I think, coming through now, I don't see got SLT pumps, although easily, you know, uh, they could be ground source heat pumps and that's an interesting place because you can service it's called sort of three homes with one ground source heat pump, so that's all interesting. And you know, EV charging points and, and all the and all the um, insulation values that go around that, and even passive house now is becoming more affordable to do with. And I guess um, investors like that because they're looking at the long term yeah. returns, and obviously, if they're reducing their operational costs and things like that that's going to help and if they don't do it now we spoke off off camera before just about kind of rules and regulations yes. coming into play at some point we're pretty sure that there will be some regulation around kind of epcs however they're they're calculated but retrofitting is often more expensive isn't it it is quite expensive yeah. and i think a lot of you know clearly a lot of the investment coming in at the moment is is going to have an impact on how house house builders build? Um, I think in the future, and I think it's a funny sort of way. Sometimes um, incentives, you know, are, are sort of push pull or stick out in other ways. Um, and I think probably we've all worked in in, in industries where um, there's been an, a slightly um, unexpected way that things change. And you know, for for our industry, our institutions who are, who are who are investing in houses. You know, are signed up to sort of European directives, uh, and that's not because you know uh, whether it was Brexit or not. You know, they invest in Europe, yeah. And so, you know, pretty much every big institution around the world is, is signed up to sort of the SFDR regulations, which means that ultimately anything they invest in has to be demonstrably, you know, green, yeah, uh, and have social impact and great governance. Um, and so, in a roundabout sort of a way, uh, that's going to incentivize. Uh, builders and developers, house builders, to, to 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 build in that way because otherwise the money that they get from these institutions, in whatever form they get it, whether it's loan or as a joint venture or whatever, is going to be more expensive. Yeah. Or, you know, they simply won't get it at all. You know. So it's not actually about the UK's regulations. No. It's about the regulations of wherever they, if, if they're... Yeah. Like you say, most of them are investing globally, so yes. it's about what they need to do. And 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 clearly, the UK are a little bit behind. Well, I think even, even smaller investors are going to have to be aware that you know, in terms of what their portfolios look like, you know, you've got to be saying, okay, what's coming down the road? Mm. And I think we sort of we sort of we, we sort of touched on this before. We and I was sort of talk, talking about sometimes these things can get kicked can, can get down the road a little bit, and um, and uh, uh, you kind of say to yourself, well, I'll do it when I have to, but you know. The way that I explained it is, I think it's a really good way to explain it, because someone explained to me like this, and I thought, you know, that's dead right. It's a bit like that sort of holy Monty Pilot's holy, holy Grail film, you know, when they're trying to siege the castle or attack the castle. You know, the attackers look as though they're actually getting further away because they can get kicked under it, but all of a sudden, bang, they're on top of you. <laughs> and and that's, what it's, that's what it's going to be like. So you have to be ready, and you have to make sure your portfolio is in the right space. And also... When it comes to that point where bang, it's on top of you, it's on top of everyone. So yeah, trying exactly. to get labour, materials, all these yeah. things, it's going to obviously cost more. So make hay while the sun shines. Well, this is exactly that. I'm also a trustee of the Small Housing Association where I where I live, and um, you know, there's always the temptation to say, "Well, we haven't got enough money to do that. Let's do it later." And you go, "What's well, going to cost more later?" Yeah, you know, uh, um, and there's also the tendency for people to say, "Well, I'm not getting ground source heat pumps. I'm not getting air source heat pumps because the, uh, you know, we don't know how good they are." Like, well, we know how good air conditioning units are. They only work in reverse, so that's how good they are. They've been working for years, and you've got people like Dakin and Mitsubishi and all these guys do it. And frankly, they're pretty good. Um, and then they say, well, we can't maintain them. I said, listen, you know, you, you can maintain them. You keep, if you maintain them in the same way as you maintain your boiler, yeah. you know, every year, they can do the same thing. And if you do that, they'll work properly. If you don't, they won't. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't drive your car until it ran out of oil, you know, down the, down the M1, would you? Sure. You, yeah. you get it serviced. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, keep it, keep it, keep it serviced. And and so, who was building and investing in new build rentals or even just single family rentals? Um, I don't know, pre two thousand then, and how's because obviously well, we know anybody. It's, obviously, it's institutions now. Was it a case where it was just councils building these properties after the war? Oh, for rentals. Uh, obviously, RPs were doing it, so yeah. they've been doing it for quite a long time. And there's been a sort of transition from councils, you know, sort of handing over, transitioning it all their original properties over to to RPs. But a lot of those guys, you know. Um, Depending on where they work, it found that a lot of the stock that they got wasn't wasn't to your fit for purpose. In, in lots of ways, it was a lot of legacy stock. You know, like some of the stock that we've got for our very small housing associations, a lot of legacy stock. Ideally, we wouldn't own it, but we have it, and we and we look after the people in it. But so uh, we don't want to get rid of it because it, it suits people. But you know, in terms of building homes, it was just home builders building for sale, or or councils, not so much in those days, but quite a long time ago, yeah. But uh, or, or, or residential or uh, registered providers. So, yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't really a thing, you know. And, and also, you have to bear in mind that AST didn't come in until I can't remember the date now. I think it was eighty nine. Yeah, uh, it was eighty nine. I think it was eighty nine or ninety nine. Yeah, eighty nine. Yeah. And um, prior to that, you know, there was this whole issue about you. Well, you know, we don't. You know, everybody who goes in gets security tenure, and yeah, we can't. We can't get them out if we have to. So. It was only after that time that really it became a thing to be invested in because ASDs came in and that was a great thing to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there's the, the, the rental reform bill going through Parliament at the moment and we're going to get rid of Section 21 and a few other things coming in, and, which means actually they have to get rid of the AST predicated on that with fundamental foundations. So it's interesting to see what comes out of that mm-hmm. in the future. Um, I think it's right that there's a more equitable balance and and I think, uh, you know, I've spoken to uh, to... Bet Beadle on this. I think you know the, the uh, NRLA have a have a particular view, viewpoint, and I think we support them on that. So, because I think I think where do where do the SME home builders come into play? Because it seems like they have actually picked up a lot of the slack, and also the the large home builders for building new homes. But the majority of those have been for sale, like we said, and because councils are no longer building because they've not got the Capital or expertise, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, and so now we're seeing that kind of the private sector is doing a lot more. And is there opportunities there to be partnering with some of these institutions? Oh, absolutely. And this is one of our, one of the key things that we're talking about because, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, with houses you can build them everywhere, mm-hmm. which means that anybody can build under the SMEs. So the the SMEs, funny enough, are absolutely fundamental to what we are trying to achieve. Um, because we know that you know the big institutions have been doing. Yeah, if you think of a multifamily, for instance, as tier one okay. um, in terms of the consultants and the construction businesses and the investors and so forth, single-family rental can be tier one as well um, in terms of who's involved in it. But it uh, filters down right down to grassroots, because if you can build a house anywhere, um, you can have single-family rental anywhere, and you can build a house. Anywhere. And that's the key thing: is that we want to we want to bring a better standard of living and all the advantages that come with having a professional landlord and professional management to all of the country. And at the moment, we're only bringing it to a fairly small number of people who live in dense urban areas. Mm. Um, and we want to be able to do that right the way across the country. Uh, I, I, and you know, some landlords are exiting, and, and it's not as if you know we're going to take over the world because we're definitely not going to take over the world. You know, there's one of the things that I think is important to remember is that there's always room for everyone in the market. Nobody's out to kind of like, you know, monopolize. corner of the market or monopolize. So that's never going to happen. But we are, but we, what we do want to do is to have a, better, a good standard of investor. We want to attract good quality investment. We want to attract responsible investment um, into the market, and green investment into the market. And we can do that by building single family houses yeah, right way across the country. And, I mean, the PRS has had uh, a bit of a PR disaster over the last kind of couple of decades, probably now. Um, and has that been a barrier for institutions to come into the market? Um, and, and are there any other reasons why they haven't? And if so, what's changed now to make them be attracted to it? <clears throat> well, reputationally, you know, PRS has never had a great market. You think back down to Lloyd George, up first world war, coming back building homes for the heroes. 
that's when that whole market changed and the, and, and the view was what the whole world, why, why it changed. There was always been a view that sort of landlords were rather avaricious in taking advantage of the whole time during the course of the First World War. Some rent in certain areas went up exponentially because they could and because, you know, the, the, um, the, um, the war effort was, was restricted in other places and, and landlords were just charging whatever they, they got by charging. Um, and it was after that that there's a, the big PR push by government at the time was to talk about home meaning own, basically. So basically, the, the and if you look at the narrative since around, you know, 1920s, uh, that whole narrative was around uh, if you call something your home, then you then you owned it. Mm. And, and and all the magazines at the time created that narrative going through, and that's, that's what that's what sort of happened. And so we get to a stage at the moment. At the moment is that, that is that in you're thinking about this in other terms. Of course, is that the, is that the rental market is seen as you know um, an undesirable necessary, if you like, and everybody talks about ownership as being built to a dream. And if you look at any of the um, data or polling on, on home ownership and who wants to own their own home, um, it basically comes out that 90 percent of people aspire to own. We've never really, we've never really um, uh, analysed that uh, enough to know whether that's truthful or not. You know, you do end up with an asset, but it's really only people like me, a baby booner, who's, who's done really well out of it. You know, people buying today, they're not going to see the exponential growth in, in property values that, that I experienced, very fortunately. And so is it is it such a good thing to own? I think on the whole, probably yes. And I think our sector has to acknowledge that. We do come up with an awful lot of stuff around, you know, uh, lifestyle renting and things like that, but it doesn't... It's a small portion of society. Probably. Yeah, it's a, it's a small number of proportion of society. And, you know, we live in a pretty cynical world and people kind of examine that and go, yeah, that's not really true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to some people, you know, uh, rental is, you know, an essential way they live and some of the people can't afford to buy some people don't want to buy. And some people won't ever be able to buy. Is the reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was the thing in the past. I mean, I was born up in a council house in, in North Aberdeenshire when I was in Irishshire. And those people were perfectly happy in the council house. So they were well, well supported. Council came out and did all the repairs. And, uh, you know, never owning wasn't necessarily an issue. I think the big issue here is where we had um, right to buy. It's not necessarily the right to buy policy itself. But the fact that we never replaced the social housing, and and that is the problem really with um, when people say, well, it's fine, owner occupiers can buy the rental stock. But the problem is, there's more occupants in a, let's say you have a two bed house versus another two bed house. There's always going to be a higher occupancy in a rental yeah. than there is. So you're left with net demand on the housing sector. And so that seems to be the big problem with that kind of point. Yeah, I think what we what we what we've done very badly in this country is I think we've stimulated the demand side, uh, oversupply side. And I think we've got. And I don't have the answers here, but I think we've got to come up with a way of stimulating supply side um, better. Well, it's to encourage investment into that sector, isn't it? Is what well, I suppose in a small way that's that's what we're doing mm. in terms of demand. We know that there's demand to rent because there's more people there, but there's about five million. Five million on the homeless list at the moment. Yeah, well, five the waitings list. There's yeah. five five million people in, in the BRS at the moment, and you know that's not going to fall anytime soon with the affordability crisis mm. that we're having. And that affordability crisis is change because if it is going to change, what are we going to see in the market? Well, we're going to see ramp, rampant inflation in terms of the wages. And, Sure. That only leads to rampant inflation in terms of other things. So again, it's not really help. Mm. And at the moment, we're playing catch up in terms of what we can afford to buy. And when I first bought it, it was like two and a half times salary. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's relative because when you first time buyers, when they buy, they're not buying in cash, are they? So yeah. looking at that is kind of irrelevant. It's well, let's look at one: what are our upfront costs are yeah. as a percentage of earnings, and then two: what our mortgage servicing costs are as a percentage of earnings. And actually. On the whole, we're still spending the same amount per month of our earnings on, like, on servicing because mortgage terms are double what they were. They're 40 years now. <laughs> no, I know, that's just a quality story. We end up with lifetime mortgages. Well, probably, I'll I'll try to stay happy. Mortgage, yeah. 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 I'm sure, I'm sure that, that, that really will. But do you want to... think it's about mortgage property. You don't, you don't really own it. <laughs> that's the problem. Well, I th- well yeah, you... 
I, I get that point. You do own it because it's just someone's got a, got the charge there and things yeah, like that, and you true. can sell the debt and all that kind of thing. But yes, I get I get your point. I think you might. I was happy to do it mm-hmm. um, because I knew. But well, I didn't know. But what seemed to be the case, and what became embedded in during my ownership mm-hmm. with my property, my mortgage lifetime, was that you know if I sold it two years later, you know I'd, I'd be guaranteed that would be pretty much. Mm-hmm. I would do that. And if I, if I bought in a, I mean, I remember buying a, a flat in Ballon once. Probably a few in Ballon. I used to live in Huron Road. Yeah, know. I know it very well. Right, right by the common. Yeah, so I used to live in uh, the top floor yeah. conversion of flat in, 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 in Huron Road. Uh, we paid uh, £110,000 for it. And we sold it 18 months later. We put it in your kitchen, by the way. We, <laughs> we sold it one, uh, sorry, 18 months later for about one hundred and seventy. Yeah, so nice fifty grand kitchen was it? Yeah, well, that's it. And so, but I mean, I can't see that happening these days. I mean, well, we, but 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 if you look at it in real terms, it's even worse. Yeah. I mean, we're we're down from twenty fifteen in London on, in terms of real pricing on housing. Yeah, yeah so it's it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I'm not here to say, I'm not here to advocate renting. Mm-hmm. Renting is a is a is a uh, is, a, is, is, is a real thing that everybody at some point had to do. I've rented in the past. It's about men, making that period of time renting better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than trying to sort of corral people into renting. And I think that's got to be from both parties because that can only benefit everybody, yeah. investors and occupiers as well, yeah. can't it? Yeah. You know, I think uh, the trouble is sometimes you have to go into this unilaterally, don't you? Sometimes you have to say, well, who's going to make the first move? Mm. Who's going to say, okay, right? I know you guys don't really think very much of landlords, and you're renting from them, and you've all had a horrible experiences, and you all hate your agents, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but if someone doesn't make the first move, nothing's going to happen. Mm. So, I think what the institutions did, okay, well, let's make that first move. We have problems with institu- you know, reputational risk, but it's not something we want to get involved in. So, if we are going to get involved in something when potentially we could really come a cropper. Uh, then, um, then we have to do it properly. And you kind of, uh, when you talk about reputational risk, what is it that the institutions are worried about? Well, yeah, as we sort of, we sort of explained is that if institutions invest in all in all types of real estate, so they'll invest in sheds and invest in you know offices and retail parks and that kind of stuff, shopping centres and so forth. Uh, you know, yeah, most of the streets. But um, if they have a railway, one of their occupiers, if they have a railway, I don't know. Uh, Roots or somewhere like that. Uh, no, no, nobody gets monkeys about that. Nobody cares whether whether Boots and an institution are having a big row about rent. If they own, say, ten thousand re- residential homes, whether it be single family or multi family, and they have a row with someone, given the sort of social media is today, that'll be plastered all over the place, mm-hmm. and the row might be completely blown out of all proportion. But they'll still, you know, it'll still be everywhere, and people will be opining on it and on every social media platform about what they think should happen and how dreadful everybody is. But the point, and that's the reputational risk that you 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 have when you're investing in residential. You know, a commercial good commercial dust up doesn't really elicit any any sort of attention, but with an individual it does. So, what's changed to make institutions more? Kind of go into that sector more than I think, in terms of that. From, from what I see, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't say that there haven't been some issues. From, from, from what I know, in terms of the institutions that I know and the efforts they put in, it's all about minimising that risk through being the best landlords they can possibly be, <laughs> and, and that, and that's really what it boils down to. And I think they've focused on that, laser focused on that right from the beginning, and the operational management companies like. Um, Urban Bubble and Ferv Life, uh, just to lend a couple, um, have been, you know, are at the forefront of ins- uh, that sort of, you know, for, to use a phrase here, but in the industry, customer-centric approach. Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. We're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic episode, but I just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. After a long time of wanting to be involved in a financial services business, I'm very pleased to say that myself and regular guest on the podcast, Adam Lawrence, have bought into 978 Finance. We are a directly authorised FCA regulated mortgage broker who specialises in buy-to-let mortgages, commercial mortgages and bridging and development loans. 
I've been very passionate about finance for a long time and have been part of financing a lot of very complex deals, as well as your typical buy-to-let and commercial mortgages. 978 Finance focuses on the customer journey and embodies the pragmatic solution-orientated finance for each case that I absolutely love. It's got some very, very difficult financing deals over the line for me, and now I'm really pleased to be part of the business. So if you do have any new mortgages, refinances, bridging or development needs, please do get in touch with us. You can either contact myself or you can email simon at 978finance.com and we will make sure you're looked after. Let's get back to the show. So what would you say some of the headwinds are for the sector at the moment? Well, it has been... Um, the trustonomics was a bit of a headwind for everybody, I think, and it certainly uh, caused a lot of investors to sit on their hands because they weren't quite sure in which direction the economy was going. Mm. Um, I think that since that, I think government has been struggling quite uh, a lot in order to to, to stabilise the markets a bit. And we have seen gills come down uh, quite substantially, and it looks like you know the way the sun's priced into the future, there's a bit more stability coming yeah. in. Interest rates are either coming down a bit, but even though they, even though that uh, inflation went up again in the last last month, but it, it's 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 sort of minimal. But yeah. I suppose what we do have to be aware of is 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 those sectors in terms of affordability for people who rent or who buy is in, in, on, a, on a day-to-day or a month-to-month basis, what bits of those inflation are actually affecting the most? And um, I was hearing today that food inflation particularly has gone up. It is continuing to go. And, and I think on that point, it's how it affects different um, portions of society. So when you look, if you're, if you're, I don't know, the rental market that is your customer base, say, is the bottom 10% of earners in, in that location, Things like energy, which typically used to take up 7% of a household's income for that bottom 10%, is now 20%. Food as well has gone up exponentially. And so where does that money come from? Because there was never any kind of discretionary fund for the lower income households. So that's where it's difficult for those. And yes, we're seeing kind of a big increase in minimum wage going up and benefits have been coming up and LHA rates. But Normally, it's still small, and so yeah. how how is that going to be factored in? I think it's well, we've it's, it's factored in by by you know by by I suppose rents having to being held down in a way. And the thing is about rents is is it because we you and I have never discussed yeah, mortgages and how affordable they are because of the way that you can engineer um, yeah. mani- yeah. manipulate those financial instruments to yeah. to to make them affordable for length of mortgage and so forth. Um, but with rents, you can't do that. You know, with rent, it's if you like self-regulating because, despite the fact that they have gone up a lot, fundamentally, nobody can afford to spend what they what if they don't have it. They have wage back at the end of the month. That's and, it. And this is why supply and demand is secondary to affordability in the yeah. rental market yeah. because it doesn't matter if if you've got only one house that twenty families need. If you've priced it too high, they can't pay. They can't afford. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you might find that a couple of families will pile in together, but that's mm-hmm. probably not ideal either. And there has been a bit more, sort of, uh, I think, a rise in shares and stuff like that. But fundamentally, um, ha- it, I know there are a lot of people who are, who are big fans of road control. So I'm not particularly. I'm sort of looked into what's sort of happened. Oh, Scotland, um, well, Scotland's been a disaster. Yeah, but also even places like Berlin, which is often held up with the meat speaking stuff like that. You know, if you look at some of those, some of the older units that still. The investors well, can't they, afford. They, to, no, they don't recapitalise. No, they, they can't afford think, to. Yeah. So you know, so, so that's always an issue. And I think that you, you know, if you're city culture, I mean, you're, you're, you are going to say, you know, we, we need rent controls because you know his his well, uh, his, his votes, his support base. <laughs> yeah, and that's the trouble with politics in yeah. this country is where is that, is that you 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 angle your votes or, or some of the policies you to pacify your your support base, uh, and we don't think. We just don't think long-term enough. Yes. Well, for everything that China does bad, what they do well is have a long-term outlook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So fantastic. And when you compare um, the single-family rentals to the rest of the built-to-rent market, how does that compare in terms of um, 
investment going to maturity. So in the build to rent sector, we hear a lot about an average time from money going into planning, then building the, the apartments to then starting to get income in from rents again. It's typically around seven years. Is there is there more speed? Is there how do the returns differ in terms of single family and why might investors look at that over a typical build to rent scheme? Well just before I touch on the single family housing thing, um, in terms of the speed that comes through, I think what's important to notice is that I had a really interesting statistic the other day uh, from Cortland Consultant and that was a quite an interesting they did some research. And I'm gonna get this entirely wrong. But it's gonna be pretty much ballpark. And they and they and the way that the metric that they used was the number of days it took for a single unit in the block to come to to be operational, if you like, mm-hmm. compared to a for sale block. That's from getting consent to be in operation. Okay. And the metric that they use, I don't want to get this right because I don't got no one on the phone telling me I've got completely wrong. But anyway, it was something like it's on every six days for a uh, for a, a, from getting completed. a home within a rental block yeah. to be produced when you sort of invite it all down. But with the sales stuff, it's 30 days. So, when, so basically, multifamily comes out of the ground sort of six times faster. So it was yeah. that's sort of my take on it. I don't know if it's the case, but certainly it's producing. Going back to the single family housing stuff, well, it's a better cash flow because uh, you can you can deliver houses into tranches. Yeah, uh, you know, and typically, you know, if you're using a traditional building, you might deliver five every month. Mm-hmm. Well, great. So basically, you can you can you can, and that's great for absorption rates sure. because you're not bringing to the market. You're not competing with yourself. Yeah, you're not competing with yourself. And you know, the trouble I said the trouble with. I mean, you know, it's not a problem, but it's it's a it's a operational issue. Um, mobilization is an operational issue because you your investor will deliver the operational manager 300 flats all in one go pretty much in one go and you go okay there's your 300 pull them up well you're not doing that so you don't have to so basically you're doing it much more gradually and you're also getting cash in by rent as they've been delivered to you over time so it's much simpler and also it's much faster to build houses mm-hmm. so uh, and more sustainable so Fantastic. It's, it's a win-win for them uh, because not, not just that, but also the metrics around uh, churn and so forth are, are much, much more favourable in terms of the, of the houses because people stay longer. Well, average tenancies in a, in a single-family house are far, far longer than they are in a, in a one- or two-bed flat. Yeah. yeah, the thing is, I, think is, uh, I, you know, I know that, they're, that they're, I'm going to be you know, uh, marmalised by, by the... Yeah. <laughs> Well, by the, by the multifamily market, but you know those people that will that will tell me what the churn is in the big blocks say uh, it's about fifty percent mm. annually. Mm. Yeah, whereas you know if you're building, and I've sort of touched on this before, why single family is better in a multi multi tenure environment sure. is that they they are much stickier because they make friends with people who own. Yeah, of course, right? and people are fully invested well, in that area. And also, families want to lay down roots, Absolutely. and its families prefer te- well tend to prefer like like the stats show prefer houses over apartments because you've got schools, things like that. Outside that's space. Right. Yeah, your own outside yeah. space. You know, that you can use. I mean. Yeah, one of the reasons I think there was a flight to the country during COVID is that people just simply couldn't go outside. Mm-hmm. They could they could use balconies, but not for any you know, real purpose. Yeah, you know, apart from perhaps you, you use some sort of vertical opera. Um, but um, yeah, but they couldn't have barbecues on and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can do that. You can do all the to the, the normal things in life, and you can do them autonomously. You don't have to have permission from anybody. You just do what you do. Yeah. Um, and as soon as you walk through your front door, you're in. There's no corridors or lifts or whatever to, to go into. And you own your space and you can park your car outside if, that's, if you've got one or you can charge it up if, you, if you've got an electric one. You, I mean, they are so flexible in terms of spaces. And so what advice would you give to some of these kind of SME landlords and investors who are trying to grow a portfolio of residential property in the UK? What Tips or advice would you give to them at the moment? Based well, on well first of all, I'd say yeah, join the UK SFA. <laughs> there'll, there'll be a link in there. There'll be a there link. Will be a link. Um, and the reason for that is not because um, we're looking to we're not we're not membership growth focused. We're we're all about you know trying to get across to people that we need more houses, and which any way we can help do that. You know, it's kind of say to okay, so 
as an, in, as an institutional business, is we've learned from everybody within the sector. It's um, arrogant to think that there's nothing that the institutional sector can earn from small SME investors, because that's rubbish. We can all learn from each other, but we can only learn if we do it collectively. And so really, it's basically about join organizations like us. It is not expensive to do so. And you get access to a whole lot of stuff. You get access to government lobbying and all that kind of stuff, and learning and policy and stuff. Not only do you get access to it, you get to influence it. You get to comment on it. And you get to say, okay, this is what we're doing. And you, know, and you get to see uh, the trends that are evolving and you access to that kind of data as well about what's happening in terms of, we've discussed, for instance, funding. How that's looking in the future because the big in institutions are telling us what's happening, what's going on. We've got people that, like, for instance, you know, I'm quite close to some of the people in um, PFP Capital. It used to be called PFP Capital. It's called Thriving Investors. They're not quite wrong. So, um, you know, they, they are, you know, as a quasi uh, uh, RP, but also an investment fund nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, they have a lot of sort of influence about what's going on. And what's great about the sector, the institutional sector, and what I'd like the SME sector to be part of, is sharing all this knowledge to make everything that we do better. Mm-hmm. Because we can. And if you are invested in doing doing better, which I think we should all be, obviously, you know, um, yes, we all are in it for, for our own purposes and to, to create wealth for ourselves. But I genuinely don't think that you should be in housing unless you have at least one eye on the social. I, th- I think that's. I think the building wealth is a byproduct, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think. I think there's a with housing particularly. I think there's a social purpose in it, even if you're not producing social housing. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're investing in um, you're having a social impact in what you're doing, and I think that at everybody's heart, they want to make things better than they've been, not just in housing, but in everything. But where you can influence it, which where we can influence it, which is the housing piece, let's just make it a great place to be. Absolutely. Richard, that's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Loved having you on the show and uh, hopefully we can get you back again soon. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, it'd be great. We'll tell you how things go. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs>